You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Thanks for tuning in to episode 91 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Last week, we looked at the Battle of Fort Henry, which took place on February 6, 1862. The day after Fort Henry fell, a journalist from the New York Tribune, Albert Richardson, went to see Ulysses S. Grant. Richardson had been summoned back to New York, and before he departed, he wanted to say goodbye to Grant. But Grant told Richardson, you had better wait a day or two. When the reporter asked why, Grant replied, I'm going to attack Fort Donelson tomorrow. Richardson was surprised by Grant's statement. By all accounts, Fort Donelson, 12 miles away on the Cumberland River, was a stronger position than Fort Henry. And except for a handful of gunners, all of Henry's garrison had retreated there. And surely the Confederates were rushing reinforcements to the spot. So, when Grant declared he intended to immediately attack Fort Donelson, Richardson asked, Do you know how strong it is? Not exactly, Grant answered, but I think we can take it. At all events, we can try. Grant's answer revealed quite a lot about his way of looking at things. As Albert Richardson later noted, where there was something to be done, Grant tended to go right ahead and do it. Grant wanted to maintain the initiative and move against Fort Donelson as soon as possible. Although the capture of Fort Henry was a significant victory, Grant knew that his newly won position there along the Tennessee River left him dangerously exposed, and that he could not expect to hold his prize for long if he did not march across the narrow neck of land between the rivers and also take Fort Donelson. Back in St. Louis, Henry Halleck also understood the threat. Halleck feared the Confederates might concentrate rapidly at Fort Donelson and then move to attack Grant. Halleck disliked Grant, considering him unfit to command an army in the field, but any disaster that befell Grant now would reflect poorly on Halleck and would be a setback to his political maneuvering for overall command in the war's western theater. So although he disliked the necessity of trusting Grant with the continuation of the campaign, Halleck started to forward reinforcements to his subordinate as quickly as possible. The ambitious Halleck couldn't afford a defeat at this point. Although Grant wanted to march on Fort Donelson immediately after the fall of Fort Henry, he was too optimistic about what could be accomplished in that rain-soaked wilderness. Grant's initial hope to move on Donelson quickly was dashed by the weather and the supply situation. Transports were constantly arriving with supplies and reinforcements, 
but the rain-swollen Tennessee made it difficult to land the men and material. In a telegram to Halleck, Grant described his situation. Quote, At present we are perfectly locked in by high water and bad roads, and prevented from acting offensively as I should like to do. The banks are higher at the water's edge than farther back, leaving a wide margin of low land to bridge over before anything can be done inland. End quote. While Grant was struggling to get military stores and new regiments ashore on what little dry ground there was around Fort Henry, the Federal timberclads made a dramatic run up the Tennessee River that demonstrated in the most unmistakable way possible the extent to which the Confederate defensive line had been breached. With the fall of Fort Henry, the Tennessee was now open to the Yankees' Brownwater Navy. Flag officer Andrew Foote needed to send his damaged ironclads back to Cairo for repairs and resupply before they would be ready to tackle Fort Donelson. But in the meantime, he sent the three timberclads steaming south up the Tennessee on a raid to hit the Memphis and Charleston Railroad Bridge and to disrupt enemy shipping on the river. Lieutenant Seth Ledyard Phelps, the naval officer commanding the USS Conestoga, led the raid. Phelps was to take his boat, along with the Tyler and the Lexington, as far up the Tennessee as he could. Before the smoke had even settled at Fort Henry on February 6th, Foote gave Phelps the green light to begin his strike south. The Timberclad's first target was 25 miles upriver, the 1,200-foot-long Memphis and Charleston Railroad Bridge, which connected the Confederate forces at Bowling Green to the east and Columbus to the west. Halleck had ordered that the important span be left intact for possible future use by his own forces, so once the Timberclads arrived there after dark on Thursday the 6th, Phelps left behind the slowest of the three boats, the Tyler, with orders to tear up track to deny the Confederates the use of the rail line, while he proceeded south with the Conestoga and Lexington. After the Tyler was reunited with the other two timberclads on the night of February 7th, the little flotilla arrived at Cerro Gordo in Hardin County, where the Confederates were converting a steamer into an ironclad. The boat, the Eastport, was far from complete. Besides the half-completed vessel, there were valuable construction supplies at the site, so Phelps once again left the Tyler behind to gather up the material and to prepare to remove the Eastport. The Conestoga and Lexington passed Eastport, Mississippi shortly after daylight on February 8th. So far on the expedition, enemy steamboat captains and ferry owners had scuttled or, burnt or burned their boats to avoid capture by the timberclads, but after passing Eastport, the Federals managed to seize a steamboat carrying a valuable cargo of iron. The two gunboats then continued into Alabama and reached the city of Florence, where the shoals just upstream prevented them from continuing farther. Three enemy steamboats were set on fire by their crews when the Yankees came into view. Phelps sent an armed party ashore, and as the men searched the docks at Florence, they found military supplies destined for Fort Henry and also more iron plating for the half-completed east port. As the Federals loaded what supplies they could on the two timberclads and burned the rest, a delegation of civilians from Florence arrived to speak to Phelps. 
The civilians were fearful the Yankees intended to loot and destroy their city. They wanted Phelps' assurance their wives and daughters wouldn't be harmed, and they also asked him to spare the railroad bridge over the Tennessee. Phelps assured the delegation their womenfolk wouldn't be harmed, and he also promised not to destroy the bridge. The Conestoga and Lexington then departed Florence and steamed downstream, arriving back at Cerro Gordo on the evening of Saturday the 8th. During their absence, the commander of the Tyler had learned from loyal local men that there was a spot nearby where 600 to 700 poorly armed and disciplined Confederate recruits were encamped. Flushed with the success of the raid so far, Phelps decided to attack the enemy encampment. Steaming back upstream, he put a party of 130 men and a howitzer ashore, but after the Federals marched inland a ways, they found that the Confederates had fled. Satisfied his raid had accomplished all it could, Phelps started his little flotilla, which now included a couple of captured enemy steamboats and the half-completed east port. Phelps started them all back downstream toward Fort Henry. When they reached the Memphis and Charleston Railroad Bridge, they discovered that Halleck had changed his mind about leaving the important span intact, so the ironclad Carondelet and two companies of infantry had been assigned the task of completing the sabotage that the Tyler's crew had started. In his book, Where the South Lost the War, Kendall Gott writes, quote, in the afternoon of February 12th, the timber-clad division under Lieutenant Phelps returned triumphantly to Fort Henry. The final count for the raid was three enemy steamboats and the east port captured. The Confederates had been forced to burn six boats loaded with supplies to prevent their capture. Two boats were known to be still operating on the river, but were probably hidden up tributaries of the Tennessee. The raiders also had captured a great deal of material and broken up the organization of an enemy regiment. Although they were no match against heavy cannons, the wooden gunboats proved ideally suited for ascending the Tennessee River. With their lighter draft, higher speed, and maneuverability, they were able to proceed upriver to destroy bridges, capture steamboats, and raise havoc. The loss of Fort Henry truly opened the river all the way into northern Alabama. End quote. Gott goes on to point out that Phelps did make an enormous mistake in not burning the railroad bridge at Florence, since it did have significant military value. But nevertheless, Phelps' raid was a momentous achievement. The timberclad's dramatic raid deep into the Confederate heartland, when added to the ironclad's performance at Fort Henry, had a tremendous psychological impact on Southerners, including Albert Sidney Johnston who was now convinced Fort Donelson was certain to fall to the Yankees' powerful Brownwater Navy. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. With General Tillman's capture at Fort Henry, command of Fort Donelson fell to Colonel Adolphus Hyman, Tillman's second-in-command. Major Jeremy Gilmer, Albert Sidney Johnston's chief engineer, had escaped from Fort Henry and made his way to Donelson, and he and Hyman straightaway put the 6,000 men now at Donelson to work clearing fields of fire, creating obstacles from cut brush and felled trees, digging rifle pits and trenches, and preparing artillery positions all designed to form an outer line of defenses behind the gun batteries located on the river. But Hyman and Gilmer were trying to do in a few days what should have been done months before, and the two officers realized that much more than the water batteries on the Cumberland and some hastily constructed earthworks covering the land approaches would be needed if the Confederates at Donelson were to stand any chance at all against the Yankee army and gunboats. But at his headquarters at Bowling Green, Albert Sidney Johnston had no confidence in Fort Donelson's ability to hold out against the Federal's ironclads. In a message he sent to Richmond after the fall of Fort Henry, Johnston said, quote, The slight resistance at Fort Henry indicates that the best open earthworks are not reliable to meet successfully a vigorous attack of the ironclad gunboats, and I think the gunboats of the enemy will probably take Fort Donelson without the necessity of employing their land force in cooperation, as seems to have been done at Fort Henry. End quote. In other words, after what happened at Fort Henry, Johnston feared the enemy ironclads and thought them entirely capable of subduing Fort Donelson on their own, quite apart from even factoring Grant's troops into the equation. The fall of Fort Henry put Albert Sidney Johnston in a desperate situation. He knew he had to act quickly to respond to the federal victory, so he called a council of war on February 7th with his two senior subordinates, General P.G.T. Beauregard, who had just arrived at Johnston's headquarters, and Major General William J. Hardy, the commander of the Confederate troops in and around Bowling Green. Beauregard had been ordered west by Jefferson Davis, but the famous general had recently undergone surgery on his throat, and he was not a well man when he arrived in Bowling Green on February 4th. At the Council of War on the 7th, the day after Fort Henry's fall, 
Beauregard argued for stripping Bowling Green of troops and concentrating as many men as possible at Fort Donelson in order to deliver a crushing blow to Grant before he could be reinforced. But Johnston feared that leaving Bowling Green uncovered would give Don Carlos Buell's Federals a free pass to advance south from Louisville. In an article titled Gateway to the Heartland in North and South Magazine, Volume 7, Number 2, Kendall Gott summarizes Johnston's predicament when he writes, quote, If Johnston took his entire force at Bowling Green to Fort Donelson, it would leave General Buell free to occupy that city and drive on Nashville. If he divided his army at Bowling Green, he might not have enough men in either sector. Johnston decided that there were two options. He could concentrate his forces at Fort Donelson immediately and try to destroy Grant before he was reinforced, or he could evacuate the fort and retreat deep into Tennessee. The first choice was a gamble, since if this portion of his army was destroyed, the Confederate defenses in the West would be completely shattered. But the other choice was problematic. Abandoning Fort Donelson meant the loss of Nashville and a good part of Tennessee. End quote. In the end, Johnston blundered and chose poorly. Although he only had two reasonable options, either he could concentrate all available troops at Donelson to outnumber and attack Grant's army, or he could leave a small sacrificial force to hold the fort as long as possible while he withdrew from Bowling Green and Nashville with the bulk of his forces intact. But inexplicably, Johnston chose neither course. Johnston seems to have decided that the Confederate defense at Fort Donelson would be a delaying action, hoping that the garrison could hold out for as long as possible and then slip away to the south and rejoin the rest of the army. But rather than simply leave a small sacrificial force at Donelson, Johnston gradually committed 12,000 more men, or about 35% of his army, to the place. That meant that although he concentrated more troops at Donelson, the garrison was still too small to successfully resist Grant's army, and yet was too large to easily escape upriver when the time came to abandon the fort. Johnston compounded his error by creating a command structure at the fort that put two incompetent officers, John B. Floyd and Gideon Pillow, in charge of Donelson's defense. And by putting the inept duo of Floyd and Pillow in charge of Donelson's defense, Albert Sidney Johnston all but sealed the fort's doom. All of this to defend a place that Johnston thought the Yankee gunboats alone could capture. As we said before, Ulysses S. Grant wanted to move against Fort Donelson as soon as possible, but it wasn't until Tuesday, February 11th, five days after Fort Henry's fall, that the Federal Army began its march across the 12 miles of land that separated the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. McClernand's division moved out first, late in the afternoon, and camped about five miles from Fort Henry. C.F. Smith's division moved out early the next day, the 12th, and followed McClernand's troops. The Union soldiers marched eastward in high spirits. Fort Henry had fallen without the need for the Army to participate in the fight, and many of the Yankees felt Fort Donelson would be an easy battle as well. The northern soldiers expected they would simply have to march over and invest the rebel fort. Foote's gunboats would shell it into submission, and that would be that. 
Grant's men were also in a good mood because they were marching away from the flooded area around Fort Henry, where they had been packed into crowded, muddy camps. But the last few days had been warm and pleasant, and Lieutenant Henry G. Hicks of the 2nd Illinois Cavalry later recalled, quote, We passed the infantry about sunrise. Looking back over the long column, in full view there was an army with banners marching to battle. This was no uncommon sight later in the war, but at the time it was to me a most inspiring scene. The burnished arms glistened in the morning sunlight, which seemed to make ruddy the faces and rugged the forms of the men in the column. All were in the best of spirits. The air was balmy and beckoned spring. Before noon of that day, many an overcoat was thrown away as a useless burden, which two days later would have prevented suffering and preserved life. Soldiers were then, like generals, only learners in the science of war. End quote. As Hicks noted, due to the warm weather, and because they were inexperienced soldiers, many of the Federals decided to cast aside their overcoats and even their blankets during the march to Fort Donelson. It was a decision they would soon regret. The advance units of McClernand's division marched within two or three miles of Fort Donelson by mid-morning on the 12th. Major John H. Brenton related an amusing incident that took place along the line of march. Brenton, a member of a prominent Philadelphia family and first cousin to General-in-Chief George Brenton McClellan, was serving on Grant's staff. Of the march to Fort Donelson, he later recalled, quote, Two roads led from Fort Henry to Fort Donelson. The army moved along both, the cavalry watching the space between. The staff moved by the left hand, or low road. I rode near the general on my black horse, a strong, powerful beast, which I had bought at Cairo. He was possessed of a fast walk, and moreover, he would push in front of the other horses on the staff. I could hardly keep him back. He particularly and persistently would pass the general who rode his old favorite stallion, Jack. Finally, he very good-naturedly said to me, Doctor, I believe I command this army, and I think I'll go first. End quote. Just as an aside, but Major Britton was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a medical degree from Jefferson College. During his time as surgeon on Grant's staff, he saw no evidence of the heavy drinking that rumor and gossip often described as commander. Anyway, even as Grant's army was on the march, the Federal's Brownwater Navy was also moving. The Essex and the Cincinnati had both suffered too much damage at Fort Henry to have repairs made in time, but on February 11th, Foote left Cairo with the ironclads St. Louis, Louisville, and Pittsburgh. Following the gunboats were 11 steamboats transporting 6,000 soldiers from Indiana, Ohio, and Nebraska. They were reinforcements that Halleck had managed to pry away from Buell. Meanwhile, the Carondelet, which had been the least damaged ironclad at Fort Henry and which had remained with Grant while Foote's other boats had withdrawn for repairs, the Carondelet was already steaming up the Cumberland and arrived below Fort Donelson about midday on the 12th. Henry Watt, commanding the Carondelet, decided to steam upstream to get a look at Fort Donelson. Walk ordered his bow guns to lob a few rounds at the fort to provoke the rebels into action and to signal Grant that he had arrived. The Carondelet fired a few shells into Fort Donelson at long range without a Confederate response, and then she dropped back downriver to anchor and await further instructions. 
And with Grant's army closing in on Fort Donelson, and with Foote's ironclads and transports steaming toward the same spot, that's where we'll leave things this week. We'll pick up the story right here with the start of the next episode when we look at the opening moves of the battle for Fort Donelson. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Battle of Fort Donelson, No Terms But Unconditional Surrender by James R. Knight. The Battle of Fort Donelson is another offering in the History Press's Civil War Sesquicentennial series, and it's one of the better volumes in that series. You can find Knight's book and all of our other book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then as we wrap things up, we want to say thank you to Dominic O. from Chicago for his donation. And then we're thankful, as always, for Spiritwood Music giving us permission to use their lovely song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of every show. And thanks to all of you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.